Alcoholism, a merit round, means denial. Alcoholism is a tragic drama played out in three acts by at least four persons. One person cannot become an alcoholic without the help of at least another. It cannot appear in isolation, progress in isolation, or maintain itself in isolation. One person drinks in a way that is completely unlike social drinking. Others react to the drinking and its consequences. The drinker responds to the reaction and drinks again. This sets up a merit round of denial and counter-denial, a downward spiral which is called alcoholism. Therefore, to understand alcoholism, we must not look at the alcoholic alone, but view the illness as if we were sitting in a theater watching a play and observing carefully the role of all the actors in the drama. The process of addiction to alcohol always involves the pampering and protection of family, friends, and other well-meaning persons, such as ministers, doctors, social workers, and those in the judicial system. As the play opens, we see the Alfred front and center. He's the subject of this act, and all of us are the object of action. Usually he is unable between the age of 30 and 55, better than average intelligence, skillful in certain areas, and he be quite successful in a particular field of work, although his self-idealization is often far higher than his self-realization. As the play progresses, we see that this person is very sensitive, lonely, intense. He is also immature in a way that produces a very real sense of dependence. However, the alcoholic acts in an extremely independent fashion in order to deny and conceal this dependency. And from this characteristic of alcoholism comes the name of the play, a merry ground named Denial. The alcoholic has learned by chance or by experience that the use of alcohol has profound effect upon him, which is psychologically beneficial. Non-specifically, it resolves all anxieties, reduces all tension, removes all loneliness, and solves all problems for the time being. If the situation becomes unpleasant or unbearable, there is the conscious or unconscious knowledge that a few drinks will relieve this instantly. It is a psychological blessing, and regardless of the many and very curses it may bring, the use of this substance becomes the most important thing in his life because of the enormous immediate benefits it brings to him for the time being. It solves all of his problems. Other people do not respond in this way. The play opens in Act 1 with the Alfred asserting his independence in many ways, especially as he relates to his family. Communication is very difficult. There is little understanding of what others are saying. In one sense, the Alfred does not hear anything that is said to him about his drinking. Conversations are more like one-day speech than exchange of ideas. But the words which the Alfred speaks or hears are far less important than what he does or is done by others in the play. This is why it's so important to see the play in order to understand alcoholism. To observe the Alfred alone, to read a clinical evaluation, or listen to the tales of woe of the family is only a small part of the drama. The name of the play and the key word in the entire illness is denial. For there is constant verbal contradiction in what is happening and what is being said by all other actors in the play. If the play were done in pantomime, it would be far less confusing. Early in the first act, a situation arises which results in the outlet taking a drink. When he begins to drink, we see something is different in the way he drinks. He drinks hard and fast. In fact, he ingests alcohol at a rapid pace in large amounts. He may drink openly it's more likely he will conceal the amount he drinks by breaking off stage and rarely in the presence of other members of the cast. This is the first aspect of denial, the concealment of the amount he drinks. If he were not conscious of his overdrinking, it would occur openly with no concealment as to the amount, time, place, and circumstance of drinking. 
verbally stating that it does not really drink more than other persons, but in reality he drinks far more than the social norm, more often than others, and it means far more to him than it does to other persons. The alcohol drinks to excess, but this is not a matter of choice. It is a necessity for the first indication of alcoholism is the inability to drink temperately or socially at all times. This repeated denial by concealment indicates the tremendous importance of the psychological effect of excessive drinking and the inability to stop after one or two drinks. After a few drinks, we witness a profound change in the attitude of the alcoholic. It has given him a sense of success, well-being, and self-sufficiency. It puts him on top of the world and enlarges his sense of omnipotence. He is now right and all others are wrong, provided there is a difference of opinion or anyone voices objections to his drinking. There is no one act or deed which all alcoholics perform while under the influence, but there is a continued revelation of irrationality, irresponsibility, and any social behavior, and at times deviant or even criminal behavior of which the driving under the influence is a clear example. One person has indicated that there are five characteristics of the illness of alcoholism when they appear. They're not really characteristics of the person, but are symptoms of the illness. These are, first, immaturity, second, passive-aggressive behavior, third, schizoid-like conduct, fourth, complete obsession with perfection, especially, he must be perfect regardless of what he does, and fifth, psychopathic response to love, understanding, and forgiveness. If drinking continues long enough, the alcohol creates a crisis, gets into trouble, and ends up in a mess. Again, there is infinite variation in how this is done. But the movement of Act One is always the same. A dependent person acts in a very independent fashion, drinks to convince himself that this is true, and then the consequence of drinking put him in a condition in which he depends on others to protect him or remove the consequences. When he ends up in a mess, he just waits for something to happen, ignores it, walks or runs away from it, or cries for someone to get him out of it. In Act One, Mr. Completely Independent gets drunk and becomes a very dependent person who cannot remove or solve the consequence of his drinking. Alcohol, which gave him a psychological sense of being a successful man, now strips him of the costume of independence and removes the mask of omnipotence, and we see him as a helpless, dependent child. In Act Two, the alcohol becomes completely passive, and the object of the other characters in the play were the subject of the act, normally there are three. The first person to appear is one we might call the enabler, a guilt-laden Mr. or Mrs. Clean, whose own anxiety and guilt will not let him endure the predicament of his friend the alcoholic. He sets up a rescue mission to save the alcoholic from the immediate crisis and relieve the unbearable tension created by the situation. In reality, this person is meeting his own need rather than that of the alcoholic. As a rule, the neighbor is a male outside the family, but at times this is played by a relative, and a neighbor may be a woman occasionally. Professionally, this role is played by ministers, doctors, lawyers, and social workers, the so-called helping professions. As many professional persons today have had not one single hour of scientific instruction on alcohol and alcoholism, they act in the same manner and for the same reasons as non-professional enablers. This denies the alcoholic the process of learning by correcting his own mistakes and conditions the alcoholic to believe that there will always be a protector who will come to the rescue, despite the fact that they insist they will never again rescue him. They always have, and the alcoholic believes they always will. Rescue operations are just as compulsive as drinking. 
The patients are also friends with the alchemist and act like friends. The next character to come on stage may be called the victim. This is the boss, the employer, the foreman, the supervisor, the commanding officer in military life, a business partner, or at times a key, key employee. The victim is the person who assumes responsibility for getting the work done if the alchemist is absent due to drinking or is half on and half off the job due to hangover. By the time alcoholism begins to interfere with a man's job, he may have been working for 10 or 15 years for the same company, and the boss has become a very real friend. Protection of the man is a perfect and normal thing, and there is always the hope that this will be the last time. Yet, as alcoholism progresses as an illness, the overprotection of this person becomes essential if drinking is to continue in this fashion. The victim, in effect, saves the job just as the neighbor saved the outfit from the crisis. In this scene, we become aware of the fact that this is not the first time such an event has occurred and will not be the last one. The third character in this act is the key person in the play, the wife or mother of the alcoholic. The woman in his life who has been the center of the outfit's home. Usually it is the wife, and we are aware of the fact that this person is a better in this role and has played it much longer than the other characters in the act. For lack of a better term, we may call this woman the provocatrice, the female provoker. She is provoked by the reoccurrence of drinking episodes, but she holds the family together despite the disrupting factors of alcoholism. In turn, she becomes a source of provocation and controls, coerces, adjusts, never gives up, never gives in, never lets go, but somehow never forgets. The attitude of the alcoholic is one that allows failure on his part, but she must never fail him. He states he is free to do as he pleases, but she must do exactly what he tells her. She must be at home when he arrives, if he arrives. Another name for this character might be the compensator, for she is constantly adjusting to every crisis produced by alcoholism and compensates for everything that goes wrong within the home and marriage. In addition to the natural role of wife, housekeeper, and possibly earning part of the bread, she becomes nurse, doctor, and counselor. With three roles she cannot play without injury to herself and to her husband and often to the children. Yet everything in our present society conditions the wife to play this role of provocatrice. For if she does not play it, she will be going against what society conceives the role of the wife to be. No matter what the outfit does, he ends up at home, for this is where everyone goes when there is no other place to go. Act two is now played out in full. The alcoholic in his helpless condition has been rescued, put back on the job, and restored as a member of the family. This reclothes him in the costume of a responsible adult and free adult, but in effect, it has increased his dependency because the consequence of drinking were removed by others, and the entire mess cleaned up by persons other than the one who made it. The painful consequence of drinking was suffered by persons other than the drinker which permitted drinking to become a very real problem-solving device for the alcoholic. Drinking removed the psychic pain, and the persons that actually removed the painful consequence of the episode. In the same fashion, when the results of drinking are painful, the doctor pampers his body just as Booth has previously pampered his brain. Act 3 begins much in the same fashion as Act 1, but a new dimension has been added. The need for denial is now greater and must be exercised immediately. As the nature of alcoholism is denial of dependency, 
and the person now more dependent, the denial must be louder and stronger. The outfit denies that he has a drinking problem or that drinking is causing him any trouble. He denies that anyone really helped him, denies that his job is in jeopardy, insists that he's the best or the most skilled person on the job. Above all, he denies that he's caused his family any problem. In fact, he blames his family for all the fuss, nagging, and trouble that exists. He insists that his wife is crazy, that she needs to see a psychiatrist, or in many instances, as the hostility becomes more intense, hurls unwarranted accusations of infidelity to the wife, knowing all the time that this is not true. However, the real problem is that the outlet knows the truth, which he so vocally denies. He is aware of his drunkenness and resulting failure. His guilt and remorse become unbearable. Above all, the memory of his utter dependence at the end of the first act is more than humiliating. It's almost unbearable for a person who suffers from a neurosis of omnipotence. There are some outlets who achieve the same denial by stony silence, an absolute refusal to discuss anything related to the drinking episode. The memory is too painful. Some demand that the family remain silent, while others may permit the family to confess openly their sins of commission and omission, which are never forgotten by the alcoholic or the provocatives. Within a reasonable period of time, the family adjusts to whatever is their norm. In addition to the denial of the alcoholic that he will never drink again, the others give a similar promises. The neighbor will never again come to the rescue. The victim will not tolerate another drinking episode, and the provocatives assures her husband that she cannot continue to live under these conditions. This entire verbalization of the situation is in such stark contrast to reality. The neighbor, the victim, and the provocatives have said this before, but did not act it out. The end result, however, is to increase the sense of guilt and failure of the alcoholic, challenge his sense of omnipotence, and add to the reservoir of tension and loneliness. If this psychic pain becomes unbearable, especially with the aid of other members of the cast, there is one and only one certain means of reducing the pain, overcoming the sense of guilt and failure, and achieving a very real sense of worth and value. If Act Two is played out as described above, it is inevitable that at some point in the Act Three, the Alter will drink again, for this has become the one certain means of relieving pain and achieving a sense of well-being. The knowledge of immediate comfort far outweighs the memory of what is inevitable, and there is in the back of the mind the hope that this time he can control his drinking and gain the maximum benefits as he once did. So the inevitable occurs in Act Three. The alcoholic begins to drink. When he takes the drink, the play does not come to an end. Persons sitting in the audience have the feeling that they are watching a three-reel movie rather than a play, for the play has suddenly returned to Act One without closing the curtain. If the audience remains seated long enough, all three acts will be played out again in identical fashion, and at the end of the Act Three, the outlet will drink again. The play continues to run year after year. The characters get older, but there's little, if any, change in the script or the action. If the first two acts are played out as described above, Act Three will follow in similar fashion. If Act One did not occur, we would not have the beginning of the play alcoholism, and the drama surrounding it would not exist. This leaves Act Two as the only act in which the tragic drama of alcoholism. Can be changed, or in terms of achieving lasting sobriety, 
the only act in which recovery can be initiated by acts of volition by persons other than the alcoholic. The key to this situation is the fact that in Act 2 the alcoholic is the recipient of action and not the initiator of whatever happens. In this act alone there is the real potential to break the tragic cycle of denial. If recovery from alcoholism is to be initiated, it must begin with the persons in the second act who must learn the dynamics of the illness and learn to act in an entirely different fashion. New roles cannot be learned without turning to others who understand the play and putting into practice the insight and understanding gained from this source. If Act 2 is rewritten and replayed, there is every reason to believe that the alcoholic will recover. He is locked in a phase of resistance to treatment, and the people of Act 2 hold the keys of his recovery. If the alcoholic is rescued from every crisis, if the employer submits to repeated victimization, and if the wife remains in the role of provocatives, there is not one chance in ten that the alcoholic will recover. He is virtually helpless and cannot break the lock, but may recover if the other actors in the drama learn how to break the dependency relationship. The alcoholic cannot keep the merry-go-round going unless others ride it with him and help keep it going. The actors in the second act help keep asking the alcoholic why he does not stop drinking. Yet these are the very persons whose action assists the alcoholic in solving his basic human problems by drinking in this fashion. It is completely untrue to state that an alcoholic cannot be helped until he wants help. It is true to state that an alcoholic will not recover as long as other people remove the painful consequence of the drinking episodes. The victim and their neighbors must seek information, insight, and understanding if they plan to change their roles. It is imperative that the provocatives enter into some kind of continuing program of supportive counseling or therapy, preferably on a group basis, if she is to make a basic change in her life and learn to protect herself from the illness of alcoholism. In understanding the role of the three supporting actors in the drama, we must remember that they did not learn to play these roles overnight. These persons play what they conceive to be the normal roles that they are expected to play in life. They actually believe that they are helping the alcoholic and do not understand that they are helping perpetuate the illness by overfunctioning on their part. The neighbor thinks he must not let the alcoholic suffer the consequence of his drinking when it can so easily be prevented by simple rescue operation. It is like saving a drowning man. It simply must be done. But this rescue mission relieves the anxiety, guilt, and fear of the neighbor and conveys to the alcoholic what the rescuer really thinks. You cannot make it without my help. It reveals a lack of faith in the alcoholic's ability to take care of himself and is a form of judgment and condemnation. It does not give the alcoholic the dignity to fail or to succeed on his own. The most destructive roles are the professional neighbors, minister, doctor, lawyer, social worker, judges, and so forth, is that it trains and conditions the family to reduce the crisis rather than using it to initiate a recovery program. The family has known for five or ten years that drinking was creating serious problems. But this was not clearly visible to persons outside the family. When the family turns to a facial person before antisocial behavior is clearly visible, the family is usually told that this is not alcoholism 
and also there is nothing they can do until the drinker wants help. Then alcoholism reaches the point where it breaks outside the family and the alcoholic turns to professional persons. He secures a reduction of his crisis by seeking and using professional persons as their neighbors. This keeps the marriage run going. The family which was told initially there were no visible signs of alcoholism are now taught when it is visible that the way to deal with it is to remove the symptoms rather than to deal realistically with the illness. The very persons who fail to identify alcoholism in its early stages now treat the more advanced symptoms by helping the alcoholic get back on the merry-go-round. This further conditions the family to believe that nothing can be done to cope with alcoholism. Even when the family begins to accept the existence of a serious drinking problem and attempts to secure help for themselves or the alcoholic, the professional role is usually that of the neighbor rather than leading the family and the outlook into a long-range program of recovery. As the neighbor is the first person on the scene, he influences the remainder of the second act because it sets the direction and movement of this part of the play. Professional persons help everyone get back on the merry-go-round. The victim does not get on the merry-go-round until he has known the outlook for years. Large industrial firms have discovered that when autism begins to develop job efficiency, the man has been employed for 10, 15, or 20 years. The foreman protects his awkward friend, knowing he has a wife and children who will suffer if he's fired, and is not certain of company policy or how to cope with the stigmatized illness. Again, the personal interest and friendship motivates the victim to do for the alcoholic that which increases his dependency and adds to the necessity of denial. The provocatrice has been the first person to join the out on the merry-go-round. If she absorbs the injustice, suffers deprivation, endures repeated embarrassment, accepts broken promises, is subverted in every attempt to cope with the drinking situation, and is beaten by the constant barrage of hostility which is directed toward her, she will inevitably feed back into the marriage her own reaction in hostility, bitterness, and anxiety. She is not a sick woman who made her husband become an alcoholic. As a rule, she begins marriage as any other average person. She is caught between the advancing illness of alcoholism and the wall of ignorance, shame, and embarrassment inflicted upon her by society. She is literally crushed and needs information and therapeutic help not because she caused her husband's illness, but because she is being destroyed by it. Another reason why the wife needs help in the process of recovery is that if she changes her role, she will discover she is standing alone. Other members of the cast will treat her as an actor deserting a play when there is no substitute to take her part. This is especially true if she effects a separation, whether by choice or necessity. Some women can affect a change or role in a few conferences with a counselor who is knowledgeable in the area of alcoholism or by attending sessions at a local mental health clinic or an alcoholic clinic. Others gain insight by participating in Al-Anon group meetings. The most basic error made by women seeking help is that they want to be told what they can do to stop the drinking without realizing that it may take months or a year or two to condition themselves emotionally to play a new role in the alcoholic marriage. Six months of regular participation in counseling, preferably in a group, should be the minimum goal. 
if others in the supporting cast do not respond by learning new roles. The wife may need to stay in a supporting group for a period of two or three years before her change is effective. But the wife enters into this activity seeking help herself, not to guarantee her husband recovery from alcoholism, but to recover from her own situation and also to help protect the children. This may in turn drastically alter her reaction to the drinking pattern and, in many cases, lead to recovery on the part of the alcoholic. Few husbands can withstand a drastic change in their wives without adjusting to this situation. If there are children in the home, the wife must seek help outside the family or circle of friends if she is divorced of her injury to them. A provocatee places the children between a sick father and a grieving mother. The wife who seeks and finds help early enough can prevent much of the destruction which otherwise is passed on to the children through her reaction to her husband. The wife who plays the role of provocatee for the sake of the children is hurting rather than helping them. The moral issue is also important. No one has a right to play God and demand that the alcoholic stop drinking. The reverse is also true. The alcoholic, in acting out his omnipotence, needs a supporting cast in order to play this role, and the wife has every moral right and responsibility to refuse to act as if the husband were God Almighty whose every wish she must obey. Literally, she cannot tell her alcoholic husband anything. Her only effective means of communication is to learn to act in freedom from the dominance of his omnipotent attitude. For some wives this may occur in weeks, but for most wives it takes months or even a year or two. Two factors abort most long-range problems for the wife. The husband's attitude may range from disapproval to direct threats or even violence. Also, responsibilities in the home may make it very difficult for the wife to leave the home for therapy during the day, and few alcoholic husband will babysit in a responsible fashion while his wife seeks help or offers by attending Al-Anon meetings or other group therapy sessions. If a husband married at the average age during the pre-alcoholic stage of his illness, the wife is the first person to join him on the merry-go-round when alcoholism appears. Many years later, the neighbor and victims start their role. If recovery is to be initiated before the illness becomes crucial or acute, the wife must initiate the action for recovery. However, the unwillingness of our present society to accept alcoholism as an illness until it reaches the chronic or addictive stage places the wife in the position of acting as a pioneer in the search for help. If a minister condemns drunkenness and a doctor fails to recognize the existence of alcoholism, her shame is increased and help is cut off. If conditions become unbearable and she consults a lawyer, he may talk in terms of separation or divorce as the only service he can render. And this increases her sense of failure or terrifies her with an immediate reaction of anxiety and grief surrounding the possible separation from her husband. So most wives climb back on the merry-go-round, which is completely normal. Until there are drastic changes in our cultural and social attitudes toward drinking, as well as alcoholism, the family members who wishes to initiate a process of recovery from alcoholism must understand that this may be a rather long and difficult process.
However, if a wife or other family member is willing to enter into a weekly program of education or therapy and work at it earnestly for a period of six months, changes usually occur, not only in her life, but in the attitude and action of the alcoholic. A wife cannot make a change unless she believes it to be right, and also she must have the courage and strength to withstand the initial subversive action of the alcoholic to thwart her program. She cannot be expected to do what is beyond her emotional and financial capacity, but by remaining in the program for months and perhaps even for a year or two, she may resolve problems which at first seemed impossible. There is no easy way to stop the merry-go-round, to spell out concise rules which apply to all members of the caste. For any one rule is impossible. The family often is able to see the merry-go-round of the alcoholic, but fails to see they're the ones which provide the resources which keep it going and also the ones that are suffering the consequences. The hardest part of stopping the repeated cycle is the fear that the alcoholic won't make it without help when it's the very help that he is getting which permits him to continue using alcohol as a cure-all for his ills. Now let's talk about initiating recovery. If a friend is called upon for help, this should be used as an opportunity to lead the alcoholic and the family into a structured program of recovery. A professional person who has alcoholics as clients or patients and how to cope with alcoholism. Specific literature is available through local, state, and national programs on alcoholism. Short, intensive training programs and workshops are also available for professional persons who are willing to spend time and effort learning more about alcoholism. If a wife thinks her husband has a drinking problem or drinks excessively in a repeated fashion, she should seek competent help and counsel immediately for the purpose of evaluating the situation. If a wife knows her husband has a drinking problem, she should seek counsel with the intent of entering group education and support. These sessions should not be abandoned after a few visits, for changes do not occur overnight. Regular weekly tenants should continue for several months, for many wives report that it required at least six months to gain realistic benefits from group participation. This may not seem fair to the wife, that in our present society the wife has one basic choice, to seek help for herself or commit the illness, alcoholism, destroy her and other members of the family. As AA is the most widespread resource for the alcoholic today, so is Al-Anon the most readily available help for the wife and other members of the family. They're all As AA is the most widespread resource for the alcoholic today, so is Al-Anon the most readily available help for the wife and other members of the family. There are also alcoholism information centers, mental health centers, and some professional persons who have learned enough to provide competent counsel for the family. If a persistent search is made, the wife can find a source of help. This is the only realistic point where the married ground of denial may be broken during the early stages of alcoholism. It is also the only realistic method by which the family may introduce a recovery program into the family situation. Once this is done, the family members must continue to use whatever help is available and build their own program of recovery, preferably with an established group. 
initiating and recovering Kogut may cause greater conflict and suffering in the beginning. But in the long run, this is far less painful than helping the alpha continue to drink by being a member of the supporting caste. Sobriety is a means of recovery, not the total goal of recovery. There may be tremendous readjustments in sobriety for all persons in the family, and it does not occur overnight. The alcoholic must understand it takes the family time to make the adjustments to the new routine of sober living. The first few months of sobriety may be the most difficult period of a marriage. Many encourage the family to understand the alcoholic during this period. It's just as important for the alcoholic to learn to understand the family. What about the housewife alcoholic? For those who wish to structure the married ground for the housewife alcoholic, the process is quite simple. The husband plays all three roles in the second act unless the wife is a married girl who works. If he expects his wife to recover, he must change all three roles. And to do this, he needs more help than the wife of the alcoholic husband. The husband will deny that he needs help, but after all, this is the name of the play, a mere ground named denial. Now, two guidelines for the family. First, secure additional autism literature for your own study. Second, seek out all professional autism services in your community. Use whatever is available for the family and know what is available for the alcoholic. Third, Attend Al-Anon meetings regularly in addition to professional services. If Al-Anon is not available, attend open meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous. Fourth, remember that the family perpetuates the illness or may initiate recovery. Consciously work toward recovery by initiating and continuing a change in your role in the drama of alcoholism. One final thought. Becoming a mature, responsible person does not mean attempting to change others, but working on changing of self. God does not let us blame others for our failures, which we must correct. It is just as important to know that we must not let others blame us for their failures. Recovery through reconciliation of all members of the family and society means that each of us must work out our own problems and give others the dignity to fail and the dignity to change voluntarily into a more responsible person. Each person in the narrow ground of denial either perpetuates the condition of autism or by their own efforts contributes to the process of recovery. Kind of Care, Some Thoughts for Families Coping with Alcoholism by Terence Williams. We would like to offer some ideas that we at Hazelden have about what seems to happen to people who are emotionally involved with addicts and about what these people can do to save themselves. Bear with us, will you please, when we use the term addict to refer to people who are harmfully dependent on drugs, any and all drugs, including alcohol, the most common drug of abuse in our culture. And let's define as family, everyone who knows and cares about an addict. We would like to discuss why we think it is important to provide help for the whole family of concerned persons, for the immediate family and for the friends and neighbors and for employers of addicts, even if the addict refuses to be involved. We would like to offer our message of hope for those who care. We hear a lot these days about the death of the family as an institution, 
and about how the traditional family system is increasingly unable to cope with the demands for growth and change in contemporary society. Maybe the family is changing its style. Maybe the family is no longer the socio-economic basis for the traditional community. But a family of some kind, however broadly we define it, is an emotional survival system, something that each of us is involved with in one form or another. Certainly every addict has a survival system that includes other people, and addiction is indeed a family illness. According to experts, every addict has a significant and direct impact on the lives of several other people. What happens to these people, to these concerned persons, when one or more members of the emotional survival system become addicted to alcohol or other drugs? Why do we call chemical addiction a family illness? We think that as a chemical addiction becomes more and more apparent, it becomes more and more important in the life of the family. In some terrible way, the family struggles to control the addict's behavior or somehow to escape from the consequences of his behavior begins to govern the family's whole lifestyle. As the family struggles to cope, typically they become bound up in a destructive pattern of recurring, predictably bad situations. Just as the addict himself suffers, they suffer deeply, but they can't seem to bring about any kind of change in their lives. It is our observation that concerned persons become addicted to the addict in much the same way he is addicted to drugs. The real tragedy of addiction, it seems to us, is that the addict eventually reaches a point at which he begins to feel insecure about his unhappy feelings. Every addict is aware when he is really hooked that drugs and or alcohol are more important in his life than family or job or health, aware that the drug experience is too important. At the same time, a denial system assures him that the next time things will be different, that he can control his drug use. Inevitably, he fails again, and failure after failure damages his feelings of self-worth. He begins to feel helpless and worthless. It seems that something a lot like this also happens to the people who are emotionally involved with addicts. As the addict becomes more dependent upon his drugs, the family puts more energy into coping with the situation, and coping becomes a central part of their lives. They anticipate the drinking and other drug use. They bear with it somehow while it goes on, and they adjust in order to absorb the harmful consequences as each cycle ends. They know in their hearts that they cannot change the addict. At some level, they actually are aware of this. At the same time, something quite like the addict's denial system tells them that they can help the addict, that they can remedy the situation if they just hold on that things will be different next time. When the cycle inevitably repeats itself, the family of concerned persons suffers. 
those people whose only sense of emotional well-being is deeply dependent upon the addict and his behavior begin to feel helpless, to feel insecure, just as he does. It is almost as if the people who are concerned about addicts become addicted themselves in proportion to the depth of their concern. And everyone in the family of the addict becomes involved in an old win game called Next Time It Will Be Different. When concerned persons become hooked, they unwittingly accept the role of enabler for the addict. Another term to describe this role is hurt or angry or frightened, caretaker for the addict. These family members sometimes become saviors. A healthy, kind, and loving part of them says that they have the responsibility to save the addict. I know I am a capable person, and I know I can help if I can just find the answers. Or they become partners, drinking with the addict trying to join him in his game and to win him over to some reasonable behavior this way. Right now he needs you and we are going to stick together until we have this lit. Or they become victims. They assume the self-defeating role of people whose mission in life is to suffer. It's my duty as a wife, husband, parent. I know things will be better someday. Or they become tough guys trying vainly to force the addict into changing his behavior. What this kid needs is some military therapy, two years in the service. They'll straighten him out. Concerned persons will play one or more of these roles at one time or another, or one of the roles will be their way of relating to the addict. In some way, however, they establish themselves as being responsible for the addict. In each of these roles, there is the implicit assumption that the concerned persons can somehow change the addict. And it is this assumption, together with the addict's defiance, that keeps the game going. Each role feeds the addict's resistance to change. He doesn't really need to change in any event because the family keeps telling him, through their efforts to fix him, that they will take responsibility for him. The family doesn't know this, however, and to suggest that they are partners in the addiction, that they too are hooked, and that their enabling behavior is important in maintaining the drug and alcohol use, can cause them to feel more guilty than they already do feel, can reinforce the delusion they already have, that somehow they have caused the drinking and other drug use. Describing their involvement in the addictive process can also make them feel more helpless, more frustrated, and more of self-pity than they are already. It seems to us that the best way to help is to encourage concerned persons to understand the system and to see their roles in it, to help them look at their own addiction to the addict. It is only with understanding that each family member can take responsibility for his part in the system. We make every effort to respect the family's situation, to understand it, and to reassure the family that it is totally reasonable. We try to recognize how important the addictive relationships are for the family, to respect the family truly, and to look at it without judging it 
to appreciate the family. Then together we try to examine the relationships. The family systems approach of such family therapists as Murray Bowen, Don Jackson, Jay Haley, Carl Whitaker, Virginia Sapir, and others is helpful in discussing the enabling role in a non-judgmental way. And this approach parallels the AA and Al-Anon philosophies. In a recent article, A Family System's Approach to Alcoholism, Addictions from 1974, Murray Bowen says, In systems theory, the focus is on the functional facts of relationships, on what happens, how it happens, where it happens, insofar as such observations are based on facts. It carefully avoids man's preoccupation with why it happens. Bowen goes on to say, From a system's viewpoint, alcoholism is one of the common human dysfunctions. As a dysfunction, it exists in the context of an imbalance in functioning of the total family system. From a theoretical viewpoint, every important family member plays a part of a dysfunctional member. This theory provides a way for conceptualizing the part each member plays. Therapy is directed at the family member or family members with the most resourcefulness, who have the most potential for modifying their own function. When it is possible to modify the family relationship system, the alcoholic dysfunction improves, even though the dysfunctional one may not have been part of the therapy. The alcoholic dysfunction may improve for the separate family members, and the alcoholic may then decide to take responsibility for his own behavior. But there is no assurance of this. The alcoholic may very well move on to find another caretaker, and this is frequently what happens. The important point that Bowen makes is that the concerned persons can interrupt the destructive cycle of family-wide emotional addiction. Even if the addict continues to use alcohol and other drugs, They can, if they are willing, give up their caretaker roles and can begin their own emotional growth quite apart from the addict. If they are able to change their own roles in the family system, they also, by this action, do all they are able to do in freeing the addict to grow too. He may not accept this freedom to grow, but he may. If the family does not feel blamed, If their self-hatred and frustration don't get them down as they examine the dysfunctional family system, they are sometimes ready to see that they must step out of their enabling roles, their caretaker roles. They may be willing to deal with their own addictive relationships. The big problem is to help the family work through the process of letting go, freeing themselves from something that has become a very important part of their lives. If the concerned persons, the caretakers, are willing to face the uncertainty, the adventure in living that marks personal change, they can begin the process of breathing that necessarily accompanies the end of their old relationships. Therapy cannot help much, it seems to us, in persuading people to give up addictive caretaker relationships when they still believe that controls are possible alternatives. Typically, 
These are people who believe that AA, a therapist, or rehabilitation center can cure the addict and return him or her safe and sound to the same family system. But therapy can help, we think, when the caretakers have already decided they must end the sick relationship but cannot figure out how to do it. We can help when they are willing to begin growing. We can help when they are still afraid they have only two equally unacceptable alternatives. One, to go on putting up with the crazy behavior of the addict, or two, to divorce the addict, kick him out of the house, or otherwise remove him from their lives. We can help them to see that there is a third way, another alternative. This third way involves coming to terms with the fact that no one can change other people, that caretaking does not cause healthy change in anyone. The end of the caretaking relationship is the end of this very important part of the lives of concerned persons. It is the death of a relationship, a loss. Just think of the time and the emotional energy that concerned persons spend trying to do something constructive about the problem of addiction. Even if all this experience has been painful and frustrating, it has become a part of the whole family's lifestyle, and giving up the old role, it is important to realize will often involve a great deal of sadness. In what may seem an unlikely way to discuss recovery and growth, we would like to say something about grief work, about the process of reaching acceptance of the end of relationships, about accepting losses. One of the best discussions of this subject is a book by Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, a psychiatrist who worked for some time with terminal patients in hospitals. On Death and Dying, New York, Macmillan, 1969, is her study of how people are able to accept death, the end of all relationships. The stages that she describes seems to be something that people we work with can use to conceptualize the end of their relationships with addicts, the beginning of new and more fulfilling ones. Try to see if any of this fits your own experience. The denial stage. The first stage in the process of moving toward acceptance of death is denial. People who are sick can and often will deny that they are sick. They will refuse to accept a doctor's diagnosis. This is, after all, a pretty natural thing for us to do. In related ways, we can deny that we need glasses by simply putting off the business of having our eyes checked. We can deny that we need to have dental work done by avoiding the dentist, and so forth. The person who is emotionally involved with an addict denies that he cannot somehow control the situation, usually by denying that he or she is even trying to do that. Some people, even in the groups we work with in a treatment center, will in fact deny that the addict's spouse or child or parent or friend is an addict, will deny that there really is a problem. Others will retreat to this position if the process of ending the sick relationship seems too painful and difficult. Denial seems to derive from the concerned person's fear 
fear of somehow betraying the addict by admitting what is happening, or fear of the therapy process itself. Our goal in working with people who are in the denial stage is to help them feel safe enough to look at what is actually happening in the family's life. The anger stage. The next stage a dying person must look through in attempting to accept the fact that his impending death is anger. When they can no longer deny their illness, terminally ill patients experience feelings of anger and self-pity. My God, why is this happening to me? What have I done to deserve this fate? Why, why, why? They keep asking. Concerned persons who have passed through the stage of denial, who have admitted that they have been trying to fix the addict and that their efforts have all failed, are often filled with similar feelings of anger and self-pity. They are angry at the addict, at themselves, at life itself because they are frustrated at every turn. All their efforts have failed, and angrily they will file for divorce, or kick the child out of the house, or run away themselves. Enraged, they murder. Anger and some kind of crazy energy govern their lives, or else they are locked in a smoldering kind of passive-aggressive hostility. Divorce, enforced separation, suicide, murder, or endless grinding resentment are products of this kind of situation unless these people find some kind of relief. Our goal here with concerned persons is to help them to own their own anger, to recognize and deal with their own feelings. They are letting the addict control them. They are lost in their own addiction. Often a lot of progress can be made when people realize how specifically they let themselves be controlled by the addict, how their whole relationship is loaded with self-fulfilling prophecies and disappointments. They can sometimes see how letting go can permit them to have again the choice of caring. The bargaining stage. As the dying person faces his death, he often passes through a stage of bargaining trying to make a deal with the doctor or with God. He pleads for just one more day, just one more springtime, just one more visit with his family, just one more chance. When concerned persons see how futile and destructive their anger is, how pointless their self-pity, they too are prone to bargain. I am a parent, after all, and a parent has to exercise some control. Do you mean we just have to let him die? Isn't there something we can do? But the real bargaining point for the contemporary well-informed caretaker has to do with rehabilitation programs. How do we go about getting him, her, into treatment? What are commitment proceedings and how do they work? What is the best rehabilitation center? Our goal in working with these people is to help them let go entirely to feel their powerlessness, to change another person, to move on to the next stage in their grief work. Eventually, when they realize that commitment can be accomplished only for their own sake, not for the addict's sake, they can turn that way if they want to. The depression stage. Elizabeth Kubler-Ross says that when dying people can no longer deny their illness, 
When their anger does them no good, and when bargaining proves futile, they endure a period of depression. In a hospital, depressed people facing death isolate themselves. They refuse to receive visitors, refuse to eat, refuse the comfort that others offer them. They cry quietly as they come to a full awareness of their powerlessness. This is step one in Al-Anon and AA. Concerning persons who finally learn to know that they are powerless to change the addict will cry too, and sometimes they refuse to move on to the last stage of grief work. People who are locked in depression are usually more resistant to therapy than others. Sometimes they will continue to grieve for years. The goal of therapy with these people is to help them to keep working, to encourage them to be aware of their feelings, to understand them, and to pass through them into the final stage of their grief work, acceptance. The acceptance stage. In Al-Anon and AA, some kind of peace of mind is available to people who are able to take the first three steps. The first step is, we admitted we were powerless over alcohol, that our lives had become unmanageable. Concerned persons must realize their powerlessness over the alcoholic, the addict. The second step, came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. And the third step, made a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God as we understood Him. These are the stages that the addict must pass through as he learns to accept the death of his relationship with alcohol and other drugs. They are the stages that concerned persons work through as they accept the death of their caretaker roles. They are almost like a summary of the stages that Kubler-Ross describes in her study of how people are able to accept death. We all have the God-given ability to accept the end of our lives with peace and dignity. Our message of hope is that concerned persons can learn how to escape from their addictive relationships with addicts with the same kind of peace and dignity and to build healthy lives for themselves. They can learn to be comfortable in their awareness that they are unable to change the addict. At this point, they are able to detach emotionally from the addict's problem. They are free to give the problem back to the addict. They can now love the addict again, care about him, and not care for him. Understand him without internalizing the problem if the addict uses drugs again or relapses by drinking and without taking credit for the whole process if the addict decides to take responsibility for his own feelings again and for his own behavior. They can be free to care. This concludes the messages on this tape. The first tapes regarding other aspects of chemical dependencies are also available from Hazelden Educational Services.